John chapter 11, verses 1 through 37, verses 1 through 4. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Burkett notes, This chapter relates unto us the miraculous power of Christ in the raising of dead Lazarus, which, as one of his last, was it one of his greatest miracles which he wrought. And yet we find none of the evangelists make mention of it, but only St. John. The reason is supposed to be this, because when the other evangelists wrote their history, Lazarus was then alive. For Epiphanes says he lived 30 years after he was raised by Christ. And probably the mention of this relation might have brought Lazarus into danger and trouble. But St. John wrote his gospel after Lazarus's death. This miracle was a sufficient demonstration of Christ's Godhead. None but an almighty power can recall a man four days dead from its settled corruption to a state of life. None but he that created Lazarus could thus make him anew. Here observe, one, the tender sympathy of the two endeared sisters with their afflicted brother. They feel his sorrows and acquaint their Savior with his sufferings. Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. They do not say, our brother that loves thee is sick. He whom thou lovest is sick. Thereby pleading, not the merit of Lazarus, but the merit of Christ. For how can the love of Christ, which is infinite and eternal, have any cause but itself? Note, the person whom Christ loved is sick and dies. Learn hence, that strength of grace and dearness of respect, even from Christ himself, cannot prevail either against death or against diseases. Lazarus, whom Christ loved, is sick. Observe, too, the gracious answer which Christ sent to the sister's message. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. That is, this sickness shall not bring upon him such a death as he shall remain under the power of to the general resurrection, but is only designed to give me an opportunity of glorifying God by exerting my miraculous power in restoring him to life. Learn hence, one, that as God's own glory is his supreme aim and end in all his actions, so in particular it is designed by him in sending afflictions upon his people to glorify his power and wisdom, mercy and love in and upon them. The saint sicknesses are all for the glory of God. Two, that God is glorified when his Son is glorified. As none do honor the Father who do not honor the Son, so the Father accounts him glorified when the glory of the Son is advanced. This sickness is for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Verses 5-10 through 10. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days, still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let's go up to Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee and thou goest thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, 
he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Burkett notes, Observe one, what a happy, because a holy and religious family was here, and much honored by Christ. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Wherever true piety dwells, it draws the eye and heart of Christ towards it. Christ had frequently and familiarly lodged under their roof, and he rewards them for their entertainment with his love. Jesus loved Martha and her sister, where note that Martha is here named first, though elsewhere Mary had the precedency, to show no doubt that they were both equally dear to Christ. Observe, too, that although Christ loved Lazarus, yet he seems to neglect him. He delays going to him for some days. But could Christ absent himself from one so long whom he loved so well? We find he did. Let us take heed, then, that we do not misinterpret Christ's delays. He seldom comes at our time, but never stays beyond his own. Our Savior had a double end in staying thus long, namely, for greatening of the miracle and confirming their faith. Had Christ gone before Lazarus was dead, they might have attributed his recovery rather to the strength of nature than to Christ's miraculous power. Or had Christ raised Lazarus as soon as he was dead, they might pre-adventure have thought it rather some trance or ecstasy than a death and dissolution. Therefore, Christ stays so many days that God might be the more glorified and his own omnipotent power be more magnified. We learn, then, that when Christ delays to help them whom he dearly loves, it's always for wise ends and holy purposes. Observe 3 how the disciples, though they were dearly affected to Lazarus, for they had learned to love where their master loved, yet they discouraged Christ from going to him into Judea for fear of violence offered to him. Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Here the disciples pleaded for their master's safety, at the same time aiming at their own. They were to go with him into Judea, and they well knew that their danger was enwrapped in his. Therefore they seek to divert him from his intention. Oh, how has the fear of suffering made many of the friends of Christ decline an opportunity of glorifying God and doing good to others. But cannot God give safety in the midst of danger if he pleases? Let us not then choose our way according to our own apprehension, either of danger or safety. But as we see God going before us, if our call be clear, let us go on with courage whatever difficulties lie in our way. Observe 4. How our Savior corrects these fears of his disciples by acquainting them with his call from God to undertake this journey into Judea. Are there not twelve hours in a day? If a man walk therein, he stumbleth not, but in the night he stumbleth. As if Christ had said, As he that walks in the day is in no danger of stumbling, but in the night he is in danger. So long as I have a call from God, and my working time lasts, there is a divine providence that will watch over me and secure me from all danger. Now my day is not fully spent, therefore it is not in the power of mine enemies to precipitate my passion or to bring the night of suffering upon me before the appointed time. But ere long the night will come on, the working time will be over, and then shall both I and you stumble upon death. But while the day lasteth, we are safe. Learn hence. 1. That every man has his twelve hours, that is, his working time, assigned him by God in this world. 2. Whilst these hours are not spent, and whilst his working time is unexpired, he shall not stumble, he shall not die, he shall not be disabled from working, while God has any work for him to do. 
Neither the malice of men nor the rage of devils should take him off till his work be finished. 3. Every man has his night, as well as his day, in which he must expect and prepare to stumble, that is, to fall by death. For when God has done his work by us and with us, he will withdraw his protection from us, but not his care over us. We stumble upon death, and we fall into the grave, but God receives us to himself, and at the end of our working season, rewards us for our work. Verse 11. These things he said, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, our Savior cometh near to Bethany. He tells his disciples that Lazarus sleepeth. That is, plainly he was dead. This showed his omniscience, and that he was truly God for he had received no advice of his death from any person. But as God, he knew that he was deceased. Observe, too, the sweet title given both to death and Lazarus. Death is called a sleep. Lazarus is styled a friend. Yet Christ says, not my friend, but our friend Lazarus sleepeth, intimating the gracious familiarity and mutual friendship which was betwixt himself and all his members. Hence learn, one, that all true believers are Christ's friends. 2. That the friends of Christ must die as well as others. 3. That their death is but a sleep. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. It followeth, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Observe, Christ says not, we will go and awaken him, but I will go and I will awake him. The disciples, who are companions in the way, must not be partners in the work. Witnesses they may be, actors they cannot be. None can awake Lazarus but the maker of Lazarus. Who can command the soul to come down and meet the body, and who can command the body to rise up and meet the soul, but that God that created both soul and body? Lord, it is our comfort against the dread and terror of death that our resurrection depends upon thy almighty power. I will go that I may awake him out of sleep. Verses 12 through 16. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he'd spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how desirous the disciples were that Christ should not go to Bethany where Lazarus was, Bethany being within two miles of Jerusalem, where the seat of our Savior's enemies was. But our Lord, knowing his call to be clear, resolves to go. Nevertheless, says Christ, let us go unto him. O love stronger than death, the grave cannot separate between Christ and his friends. Other friends accompany us to the brink of the grave, and there they leave us to worms and dust, for death has both horror and noisomeness to attend to it. But these, O Savior, the gravestone, the earth, the coffin, are no boundaries of thy dear respects. Blessed be God, that neither life nor death can separate from the love of Christ, but even after death and burial, he is graciously affected to those he loves. Christ has a gracious regard to the dust of his saints. Though his holy ones see corruption, they shall not always lie under the power of corruption. Their dead bodies are a part of the undoubted members of Christ's mystical body. Blessed be God, 
the time is coming when Christ shall knock at the door of his children's graves and call them out of their beds of dust, and they shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Observe, too, the wise and holy design of Christ in delaying to go to Bethany till Lazarus was dead, namely that he might at once raise Lazarus' dead body and his disciples' faith, confirming them in the belief that he was the Son of God and the true Messiah. But could the faith of the apostles want confirmation, who had seen so many miracles wrought by our Savior, and had lived under the ministry all the time of it? Yes, the faith of those most eminent saints, even of the apostles themselves, want confirmation in this state of weakness and imperfection, and is capable of growth. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Observe 3. The great passion which Thomas expresses upon the notice given by Christ of Lazarus's death. Plainly, Lazarus is dead, says Christ. Let us go and die with him, says Thomas. Oh, what passionate and impatient impressions do sometimes drop from our mouths on occasion of the death of our dear relations. We're ready to be so affected with the death of our friends as to wish ourselves out of the world that we might be with them. But we must remember that it is God that appoints us our several posts and particular stations, which we must keep till the wisdom of God sees fit to remove us. Verses 17 through 22. Then, when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the length of time which Christ designedly delayed before he would come to Lazarus' grave. He was not above six miles off Bethany, being within two miles of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem within four miles of Bethabara, where Christ now was. And yet our Savior came not of four days. Doubtless that the miracle of Lazarus's resurrection might be the more conspicuous and remarkable. Christ could as easily have cured Lazarus being sick as have raised him from being dead, and as easily have raised him the first day as the fourth day. But that had not carried along with it such a full conviction of Christ's almighty power. Therefore, that he might draw the eyes of their faith more steadfastly to behold and admire his almighty power, our Savior defers his coming till Lazarus had been dead four days. Observe, too, the civil usage of mourning with those that mourned for the death. Anciently they mourned thirty days, and sometimes forty, for a dear relation. Numbers twenty twenty nine during which time neighbors and friends came to visit and relieve them in their sadness, with such conciliatory arguments as they had. Christian religion doth not condemn natural affection. Human passions are not sinful, if not excessive. To be above the stroke of passion is a condition equal to the angels. To be in a state of sorrow, without the sense of sorrow, is a disposition beneath the beasts. But duly to regulate our sorrows and set boundaries to our grief is the wisdom, the duty, the interest, and the excellency of a Christian. As to be above all passions will be our happiness in heaven, so to regulate and rectify our passions is a great part of our holiness on earth. Observe 3. Although Martha was a true mourner for the death of her brother, 
yet she does not so far indulge to grief, but upon the first notice of Christ's approach, she arises to go forth to meet him, with a mournful moan in her mouth. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Where observe how faith and infirmity were mixed together. Faith appeared in that firm persuasion which she had of Christ's power, as if death durst not show his face in Christ's presence. Hadst thou been here, my brother had not died. But then her infirmity appeared in limiting Christ both to time and place. To place, if thou had beenest here, as if Christ could not, if he had pleased, save his life absent as well as present. Then to time, now he stinketh, as if she'd said, You are come, but alas, too late. You have stayed too long, you've passed recovery. The grave hath swallowed him up. As if death would not deliver up this prisoner at the command of Christ. Oh, the imperfect composition of the best of saints. What a mixture of faith and infirmity is found in the holiest and best of Christians. This also farther appears in her next words. Verse 22. I know that whatsoever thou shalt ask of God, he will give it thee. She seems not to believe that Christ was able to raise him by his own immediate power, but must obtain power from God to do it, as the prophets were wont to do that raised the dead. She thought Christ a person highly in God's favor, but scarce believed him to be able to raise Lazarus by his own power. Had her faith extended to a belief that Christ was equal with the Father and that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him, she would not have questioned his power to raise him from the grave. For though Christ as mediator did apply himself by prayer to God at the raising of the dead Lazarus, verses 41 and 42, yet as God, he had the power of himself to raise Lazarus, as almighty power communicated with his essence from the Father by an eternal and ineffable generation. Verses 23 through 26. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Burkett notes, Here observe one, Christ's meek answer to Martha's passionate discourse. He takes no notice of the aforementioned failings, but comforts her with a promise of her brother's resurrection. Thy brother shall rise again. Thence learn that the knowledge and belief of the general resurrection is and ought to be a sufficient support under the loss of our endeared friends who die in the Lord. Observe, too, that the doctrine of the general resurrection was no new doctrine. Job believed it. Job 19.26. Daniel published it. Daniel 12.1. The Pharisees had a notion of it, but Martha here makes it an article of her faith. I know he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Observe 3. How Christ particularly instructs Martha in the cause of the resurrection, acquainting her that he himself is the author and efficient cause of it. I am the resurrection and the life. That is, I am the author and, and principal efficient cause of the resurrection, and this with respect to both natures. 1. His divine nature is the efficient cause of the resurrection. He shall raise our bodies out of the dust by the power of the Godhead. 2. His divine nature is the exemplary cause or pattern of the resurrection, for which reason Christ is called the firstborn from the dead. For though some were raised before him, yet was his resurrection the cause of their resurrection. Hence, St. Paul argues from Christ's resurrection the certainty of the resurrection of his members. 
Christ and his believers are one mystical body. Therefore, is not Christ perfectly risen till all his members are risen with him? Indeed, Christ's personal resurrection was perfect when he rose, and all believers arose representatively in him. Yet till all believers arise personally, the resurrection of Christ has not received its utmost perfection, but there is somewhat behind of the resurrection of Christ. Most fitly, then, might our Savior assert, I am the resurrection and the life. Observe 4, that Christ not only asserts himself to be the resurrection, but also the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That is, I am the cause of life natural, spiritual, and eternal. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That is, eternally. Though his body shall die because of sin, yet his spirit shall live because of righteousness. Verses 27 through 32. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come, and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come to where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou had beenest here, my brother had not died. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the full confession which Martha makes of her faith in Christ as God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. A confession which comes nearest to that of St. Peter, Matthew 16, 16, of any that we meet with in Scripture. Nay, it seemed more full than Peter's confession, for those additional words which should come unto the world are not in his confession. The sum is, she believed Christ to be the very Messiah, who was typified and prefigured, prophesied of, and promised to the Old Testament saints, as the person that in the fullness of time should come into the world for the redemption and salvation of it. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Hence learn that Christ is never rightly believed in, nor regularly depended upon for salvation, except he be owned and acknowledged to be the eternal Son of God. Martha was now fully persuaded of Christ's divine nature, of which the best of his disciples, till after our Savior's resurrection, had but a faint and uncertain persuasion. Observe, too, how earnest and intent our Savior was to dispatch the errand he came upon, namely, to raise Lazarus from the grave and to comfort the two mournful sisters. He would not so much as enter the house till he had effected his work, and therefore he goes straight to the grave, which probably was the place where Mary met him. Lord, it was thy meat and drink to do the will of thy father. It was thy meat and drink by day, thy rest and repose by night. How unlike are we to thyself if we suffer either our pleasures or our profits to divert us from our duty. Observe 3. What haste and speed Mary makes to attend upon our Savior. She arose quickly and came unto him. Mary's love added wings to her motion. The Jews, observing her hasty motion, have a loving suspicion that she has gone to the grave to weep there. But their thoughts were too low, for whilst they supposed that she went to a dead brother, she was waiting upon a loving Savior. And she that used to sit at Jesus' feet now falls at his feet with an awful veneration. The very gesture 
was supplicatory, and her humble prostration was seconded with a doleful lamentation. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Where observe a mixture of faith with human infirmity. Here was strength of faith in ascribing so much power to Christ that his presence could preserve from death. But here was infirmity in supposing the necessity of Christ's presence for this purpose. Certainly he that did raise him from the dead, being present, could have preserved him from dying, being absent, had he pleased. This was Mary's moan. Lord, hadst thou been here, my brother had not died. Full of affection, but not free from frailty and infirmity. However, Christ takes no notice of her errors and infirmity, but all the reply we hear of is a compassionate groan, which the following verse acquaints us with. Verses 33 through 37. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The condolency and tender sympathy expressed by our Savior upon this occasion. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Or as the original has it, he troubled himself, intimating that our Savior's passions were pure and holy, not like ours, muddy and mixed with sinful imperfection. The commotion of his affections were like the shaking of pure water in a crystal glass, which still remains clear. And they arose and were calmed at his pleasure. He was not overpowered by them, but had them at his command. Learn hence that as Christ took upon him the human nature, so he did assume also human affections, thereby evidencing himself to be our brother and near kinsman, according to the flesh. Learn, too, that the passions and affections which our Savior had and expressed were always holy and innocent. He was not without them, but he was above them. They did never violently and immoderately trouble him, but when he pleased, he troubled himself. Jesus groaned in spirit and troubled himself. Observe, too, how our Savior manifests his condolency and tender sympathy with Martha and Mary. By his weeping, Jesus wept, partly from compassion and partly for example, in compassion first to humanity, to see how miserable sin had debased the human nature and rendered man like unto the brute beasts that perish. Secondly, in compassion to Lazarus, whom he was now about to bring back into a sinful and troublesome world. Thus, St. Jerome, Christ's, says he, did not weep our tears. He mourned over Lazarus, not because dead, but because now to be brought again to life. Again, Christ wept for our example. To fetch sighs and tears from us at the sight of others' misery, and especially at the funerals of our godly friends. Learn hence that mourning and sorrow, and this expressed by tears and weeping, is an affection proper for those that go to funerals, provided it be decently kept within due bounds, and is not excessive. For immoderate sorrow is hurtful to the living, dishonorable to the dead. Neither is it an argument of more love, but an evidence of less grace. Note 3. How the Jews, observing Christ's sorrow for, admire his love to dead Lazarus. Behold how he loved him. Christ's love to his people is admirable and soul-amazing. Such as see it may admire it, but can never fully comprehend it. Note 4. How some of the malicious Jews attempt to lessen the reputation of our Savior, not willing to own him to be God, 
because he did not keep Lazarus from dying, as if Christ could not be the Son of God, because he did not at all times and in all cases exert and put forth his divine power, whereas Christ acted freely and not necessarily, governing his actions by his own wisdom as he saw most conducing to the ends and purposes of his own glory.